Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name is Patrick Gray and we will be getting into this week's news in just a moment uh, and then we'll be hearing from Tynes co-founder and CEO Owen Hinchy in this week's sponsor interview. And yeah, it's basically Tynes week here at Risky Biz. Yesterday I published a 40-minute demo of Tynes uh, that I recorded with Owen. Uh, it's one of the best demos we've ever done and uh, it's available on our YouTube channel. Uh, Tynes, of course, is a no-code automation platform that looks really, really good. And, uh, you know, if you do work in um, Corp InfoSec, you really should check it out because I think like nine out of 10 of you, particularly those of you who work in the bigger teams, uh, are going to look at this demo and think, you know, I could use this in my life, right? Like it's it's good stuff. Uh, but today we're talking to Owen uh, about the opportunity and threat that is ChatGPT. And uh, as you'll hear, you can already get ChatGPT to generate automation flows in times, uh, but you know, simple ones. But is using it in this context pointless and kinder is is the answer. Um, so that's a fun chat and it's coming up later. But first up, of course, it is time for a check of the week's news headlines with Adam Boileau. And Adam, LastPass has published a follow-up, some follow-up details on the incident and or incidents uh, that, uh, that it experienced last year. Um, frustratingly for like, and I've seen so many people make this comment, there's no date on the blog post. <laughs> so everyone initially was like, is this new? I think this is new. Uh, and yes, it is new. Uh, it is a new and undated blog post basically connecting a few dots and whatnot. And we've seen multiple write-ups of it with, you know, various journalists pulling out various bits to, to highlight. Yes, it's been an interesting kind of ride here because they've kind of talked through what they say you know, to them initially looked like two separate attacks, but, you know, because there was different IOCs and different sort of techniques being used, but in terms of intent, uh, very much kind of one incident. So Yes, uh, one, story, one incident was bagat from the other, I think. Yes, is, uh, what, I think what we've is, learned, is, yeah. is, is reasonable. So there was an earlier incident last year where someone broke in, got a bunch of details about like a dev environment, learned a bunch about how their internal structure worked. Uh, they caught them, evicted them, and then basically same day, according to the timeline that they evicted them from that incident, a new one kicked off uh, <laughs> targeting, I know, right, uh, targeting one of their senior DevOps engineers. Uh, so earlier on in the initial incident, uh, access had been gained to some of their cloud environments and a bunch of data from like backups of their environment were exfilled, but those were encrypted in a, in a way that you know, the attacker didn't have access to the keys, which is great. Um, Unfortunately, but clearly, <laughs> but clearly from the data they got, they were able to identify who would have keys uh, and then, you know, onwards target towards them. And they ended up breaking into uh, the home computer environment of one of the senior DevOps engineers uh, at LastPass who had the necessary key material. Uh, mm. And the story goes that they appear to have breached uh, that employee's personal Plex in, you know, systems. I'm not sure whether it's the Plex client or they had a Plex server in their house or whatever it was. Uh, they were able to breach that, drop a keylogger on the guy's box, uh, and then from there, uh, in the future, when he went and authed to uh, his actual last pass password storage, uh, they were able to then steal the contents of that, which included the necessary key material to decrypt the cloud backups that they had previously stolen. Uh, yes. So that's. I mean, pretty cool. We've said it before, and we'll say it again. You do not, under any circumstances, gotta hand it to him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you read through that, you just think, I mean, 
that was pretty nicely done, right? It's pretty, pretty smooth, yeah. And I mean, there's a few lessons to, to learn here. Like one is, you know, BYOD, letting people use devices that you don't control. Like it, it, it unfortunately, if you're typing your password into a keyboard you can't trust, you're going to lose. Uh, and so letting people log in from their home systems you know, is going to result in incidents like this. And I can think of, you know, examples of even entities like Google being breached from engineers' home systems, yeah, um, which are necessarily outside of your corporate umbrella in terms of both control but also visibility. And with great logging, you can spot weird stuff. But LastPass actually says in this write-up that one of the things that stymied their noticing this second incident was that the usage patterns you know, of a DevOps engineer getting into and operating in their environment was kind of normal. Of course, they were all frantically working to deal with the other breach, so they yeah, didn't yeah, actually yeah. spot the patterns of behaviour initially. Gee, there's a bit um, more so, activity than normal, but, you know, but there's plenty everyone's that explains running it. around yeah, with their yeah. hairs on, hair on fire. Another interesting point from this was that last uh, that uh, Plex.tv, the, the people who make the Plex media package, also suffered a breach basically at the same time, which, interesting. You know, we don't we don't have anything that connects the two other than timeline, but you know, pushing down code exec into you know a Plex client or a Plex server via Plex upstream would be an interesting kind of supply chain wrinkle. But we don't know that that's what happened. It could equally have just been a bug in you know in a Plex server that was internet facing or or whatever else. Why um, would you put your Plex server on the internet? Well, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I guess your, if you want to be able to access your you know stuff when you're on the road, but like yeah share your you know home movies and linux isos and so on i mean it's a thing that people do with plex um so an interesting kind of set of stories anyway they figured it out um role response etc etc helped the employee configure his home network in a more secure manner apparently um, so that must be fun having mandiant rolling you know instant response in your house <laughs> uh, so you know i hope, hope they got like tea and sandwiches i was uh, just about to say it. you know like coffee tea anyone <laughs> yeah um oh. They were in the middle of like a key material and other, you know, kind of config, you know, secrets uh, rolling at the time. And apparently the attacker moved fast enough to be ahead of that. So overall, like, I, you know, I, I personally do got to hand it to them. This was a smooth hop and whoever did it, like, you know, good, 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 good work. <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah, I mean, we, we yes. Um, <laughs> but you also discovered something interesting from this latest batch of info with regard to why some of the customer data that was stolen from LastPass was unencrypted. Like there was a good reason for that being unencrypted. Ex explain that to me. Yeah, so there was some detail around that. Because remember at the time they said like some information was encrypted, some wasn't, and we kind of speculated that maybe it's the comments field or stuff like that and why wasn't everything encrypted. So it actually yeah, it turned out there was a good reason, which is that the unencrypted data was stuff that the last pass like local user integration with your browser or whatever kind of needed to have available even if you hadn't unlocked the password vault. So we're talking things like, you know, uh, if you had a list of URLs that you didn't want the browser integration for LastPass to work with, then it needed to have that data available so as to not, you know, to configure the browser plugin. And similarly with, uh, you know, other configuration data where there was, you know, URLs or other information necessary for the client. So that kind of makes sense because mm. um, it needed to be available prior to the key material being given. So, yeah, fair enough. I mean, I, I was never that hysterical about some of this stuff being available unencrypted because, I mean, okay, sure, some services, there might be some sort of cookie material or whatever in a URL, but that's not all that common among major services, right? Yes. And 
the fact that an attacker was going to have to brute force these things. I mean, one thing that was interesting that I didn't know is that I think LastPass allows you to insert your code generator seed into it for automatic MFA, which I think is insane and a feature that should not exist in a password manager. But I mean, can we point to any impact that we know to have been rooted like in this, in this breach, right? Because I, I, I can't think of any stories that have crossed my desk where I'm like, oh, okay, that's because of the last pass thing. And, and what do we know about the attacker here? I mean, it's, it's, you know, no idea, right? Could be APTs, could be, you know, crypto thieves. We just don't know. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm mean, the same here. I have not seen any stories that say credentials or other, you know, input data for a breach or some other incident came from LastPass, from this situation with LastPass. Um, and yeah, I mean, as to the attacker, like, I mean, they're clearly pretty smooth, um, but as we've seen, like, that can just be kids, right? Yeah. Kids can be smooth too. It's not just, you know, APT crews or whoever else. So, you know, once again, we don't really know and, you know, time will tell. And we've been through... You know, I'm thinking back to the like when RSA got their seed database nicked by the Chinese and then subsequently used to break into Lockheed Martin. It took us a while to kind of join those, you know, yeah, dots yeah, together. yeah, yeah. I mean, that would be the interesting thing, right? Is if they were after a very specific target and they had to yes. go through here to get it. But I mean, will and we find out? Stay tuned. Keep listening to Risky <laughs> Business to uh, to find out exactly. in coming months. Um, other another big story this week uh, is that the U.S. Marshals Service apparently had one of its boxes ransomware, but there was a bunch of sensitive data on it, right? And, the, and it was exfilled. And this is this is bad. Uh, fortunately, I mean, the US Marshal Service apparently operates the US Federal Witness Protection Program, uh, the Witness Security Program. So fortunately, that data isn't about to be sold on a dark web platform in Russia. So that's the good news. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, what's interesting is we've seen them target uh, law enforcement agencies like the DC police was a big one. Um, they've targeted various sort of like county and state police forces. But this is the first time I can think of a ransomware crew actually going after federal law enforcement. And no one's claimed this one. There's some debate as to whether or not we're going to see anyone claim it. But, you know, this is how you get ants, basically. Like if you want, <laughs> yeah. if you want problems, claim uh, this attack. But I, 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 you know, what a world. <laughs> the um the marshal service is saying that it was a standalone machine which i guess is good rather than the whole you know the whole domain and caboodle um but yeah if there was a bunch of juicy information on there which apparently there was then yeah i wouldn't want to be the one <laughs> claiming this one either because yeah look even if there wasn't juicy information on there i mean this is united states federal law enforcement right like <laughs> it's a bit of an escalation anyway yeah. Let's see if we get more details on that one. But that's one of those ones where you sort of the eyebrow goes up when you see that one hit your, um, uh, in my case, hit the hit the big rolling news document that we have here at, at, at Risky Biz. Like, whoa, okay. Um, and there's been another attack that's affected service at uh, DISH, which is the satellite TV provider, very large satellite TV provider. Their service started going wonky and people were like, um, what's going on? DISH is having problems. And then, yeah, a couple of days later, it turned out that it was ransomware related. Uh, looks like they've restored service now 
Yeah, they seem to have restored at least some service. Um, there was speculation on the internet that maybe they just broke their DNS because that's the you know the most likely thing to break your <laughs> service is DNS. Second most likely is ransomware. Um, but yes, they uh, have or in my told... case, it's like failing to paste the uh, certificate chaining information into a CDN. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but well, anyway, that, that's two. Yes, <laughs> so, so yeah, cryptography being the third after yeah, ransomware, yeah, yeah. which I guess maybe maybe ransomware is a subset of cryptography. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, we we don't know a whole bunch else. No one appears to have claimed them we haven't seen them show up on um uh, on any of the leak sites so there was some rumors that the black bastard crew may may have done it uh, but yeah no no concrete uh, evidence there uh, interestingly that this you know the fact that they had to tell the sec is kind of how we now know it was ransomware before that everyone was still kind of humming and whoring so you know that's useful yeah yeah now let's move on to talking about russia stuff now and uh <laughs> hospital websites in Denmark have been getting DDoSed by anonymous Sudan. And I think we spoke last week or the week before about how, uh, you know, a security company has attributed the activities of anonymous Sudan to, you know, Russian, uh, I think GRU, uh, one of the Russian intelligence agencies uh, anyway. So uh, this stuff is still ongoing. I mean, what's interesting here though, is they whack a few websites down and it really makes the news and you just sort of think, okay, so targeting anything to do with a hospital is kind of scummy, right? But really they're just DDoSing a couple of websites and they're getting an awful lot of press for that. And you think, you know, are some people going to believe that it's actually anonymous Sudan? I mean, most of the reporting is saying it's thought that Russia is actually behind this. I just really wonder what Russia would be hoping to achieve with this sort of stuff. You know, it just seems really dumb. Yeah, I mean, it, it does. And I mean, this particular, the anonymous Sudan, you know, kind of campaign that I guess they've been running overall just does seem relatively low grade. I mean, certainly in terms of the OPSEC and, and trying to keep it not directly attributable, attributable to the Russians. Like, I don't know what they're doing. I mean, the uh, denial of service that they were doing, which is reported as a distributed denial of service, was actually done from like a bunch of machines they just rented at IBM's soft layer like cloud in, in germany and then they proxied the dos through open proxies that seems an which, unusual way to <laughs> just you know, like what was their cloud bill like when they didn't even traffic amp it or you know use stolen boxes like they're, no, they're... i mean i'm thinking i'm just thinking through this and i'm like well you gotta have something to feed the proxies right and yes. i guess you use the proxies because that's going to slow down the response so i mean it's I'm trying to decide if this is stupid or smart. <laughs> like they spun up 61 boxes. In yeah, but IBM's I mean, they probably cloud. use stolen cards for that, right? I, I mean, mean, I guess we'll find out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe I'm out of touch with how the kids or the Russians or whoever DDoS these days. But like back in my day, we smurfed that stuff for free. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Where's, the, where's the reflection attacks? You yeah, know? Like, come exactly. on. Come, yeah, on, come on, do better, do better. Do uh, that's what the kids say these days, isn't yes. it? Do better. Uh, and look, you know, dovetailing nicely uh, with that with that discussion is uh, AJ Vicens over at CyberScoop has published a Q&A uh, with Victor Zora, who leads Ukraine's cyber defense, I guess, um, or as he describes it, he's at the forefront of coordinating Ukraine's cyber defense. And it's a really interesting Q&A, which I think sort of supports our view of things as well, which is that Russia's cyber campaigns 
are just sort of a bit chaotic and Ukraine's done really well to maintain its resilience throughout them. But look, it's just a really good, it's a really good Q&A where they, you know, he talks about how when the invasion started, they started like relocating data centers west and, you know, they were all packed up and ready to go when this war started and it looked like they had a good plan and yeah, it's just a fascinating read. What did you think of it? Yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. I mean, this is, you know, one of the first kind of real cyber wars, like where we've got a war, you know, a kinetic war and, and cyber going on at the same time. And it's interesting watching how it has un- unfolded. And someone who's right there on the front lines is great to be able to ask the questions, you know, about, you know, for example, how much impact uh, have non-state actors had in this, you know, both in terms of you know, Ukrainian citizens who have the necessary skills showing up and saying, what can I do, instead of, you know, picking up a gun and going and fighting, and then all of the kind of other people weighing in. You know, I thought that was an interesting question mm. to ask and, and see, you know, what his feelings about that were. Um, but the thing, I guess, that stood out to me and to your earlier question of what are the Russians doing with anonymous Sudan, you know, his answer was, you know, these are just, you know, Russian hackers are just soldiers, you know, hackers that wear uniforms and they've got bosses to report to and they just got to make it look like they're doing something useful. And that's the feeling you get with. Yeah, it's it's so like someone can put it on a on a slide when they yes. have to present to their, you know, and talk about their, you know, uh, anonymous Sudan operation that <laughs> caused great consternation in the, you know, to, to the West, right? Yeah, exactly. And when it comes performance review time and they have to, you know, justify why they deserve a pay rise uh, or not to be sent to the front lines, then (laughs) that's something to point at. Now, I realise too why Victor Zora was described as being at the forefront of coordinating Ukraine's cyber defence in the intro to that article because I just looked up his official title. And it is Deputy Chairman and Chief Digital Transformation Officer at the State Service of Special Communication and Information Protection of Ukraine. That's a good so title. I think I think AJ's uh, uh, description, you know, somewhat somewhat briefer, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> makes sense. Uh, meanwhile, and look, this stuff is pointless as well, but falls into the category of being kind of funny, which is, um, you know, pro-Ukrainian attackers have been, you know, and this has been ongoing. I think this has happened a few times. They keep breaking into like um, uh, Russian radio stations and stuff, and broadcasting emergency like air raid messages and stuff just to freak people out. I don't think anyone really believes them. I haven't heard that people have been that alarmed by them, but it is, you know, it's just one of those things people are doing to cause a bit of grief. In this case, it looks like uh, attackers hit a satellite relay that was delivering content for like, you know, FM rebroadcast in the regions. So they, you know, upload the content from somewhere, bounce it off satellite, goes down to all of the FM transmitters and then those rebroadcast. And if that was in the clear, it's just a case of finding the right transponder and yeah. and, and transmitting. So that's you know well within the capabilities of people with, you know, software-defined radios and a sense of humour. Um, so <laughs> yeah. the sorts of, sorts of things we'd expect. But yeah, smooth, pretty smooth. Yeah, and Alexander Martin has a report uh, here. And uh, we, we had this one in Risky Business News as well. The Dutch AIVD and the Military uh, Intelligence uh, Agency, MIVD, uh, have put out a report basically saying that a lot of the stuff that Russia did in terms of intrusions into Western targets and, and institutions have not been discussed publicly. So, you know, they're, they're trying to say, look, they've been a little bit busier um, on the collection side by the looks of things than, than has been publicly known. But I guess, I mean, my, my response to that is, I mean, that's sort of what you'd expect, right? Like you would expect, you know, collection isn't escalatory, right? So I'm not surprised there's been a lot of it. Yeah, and I, and there's so much going on. They they said that the pace of Russian cyber operations is fast, which is a you know a, obviously complicates you know tying together a clear narrative of what's going on, figuring out what you can say, figuring out what 
you know, you're going to burn about what you know. It's just, a, you know, that all of the equities conversations you have to have when you're publicizing stuff is, is complicated. And yeah, there's just a lot of chaos right now in the in the cybers as to what's Russia, who's doing what, when, where, how, why. Uh, and, uh, you know, we will, you know, we only get to see a little bit of it and eventually we'll have a, you know, a clear narrative at the end of how it all tied together. Yeah, but I mean, it, it says here, you know, the vast majority of these things were collection. You know, this was espionage and... um that's probably the most productive way that they're using cyber stuff at the moment is actually collecting intelligence. Not sure that they're very good at analyzing the intelligence they collect, <laughs> but I'm sure some of it's getting through. Yeah. Now, more controversy involving governments. Apparently, Adam, they're going to outlaw E2EE encryption, and you know, this is uh, there's laws being passed. The online safety bill in the UK is uh, in the UK is being passed, and um, it's been in the news this week because the um, uh, president of the you know the Signal Foundation uh, or the Signal CEO, Meredith Whitaker, uh, gave an interview where she said that, uh, you know, if Signal were to be asked to do something bad, like we can use a security under this law, if it passes, uh, then they would depart from the UK. They would stop off, stop offering their, their service and app in uh, the United Kingdom. And that's fair enough, right? But the problem is it's been reported in some quarters that or been understood by some people that if that this law passes, then Signal will leave, and that's not actually what she said. You know, she she certainly said, "Well, no, we'll we'll leave if there's um if there's an issue." Some of the reporting around this has been a little bit frustrating for me. Um, so we're looking at an article here by Dan Gooden, and. You know, I'll just read you a part of it, right? He says, an impact assessment drafted by the UK's Department uh, for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport explicitly says that E2EE is within scope of the legislation. One section of the assessment states, and then I'll read from the excerpt that he quoted. The government is supportive of strong encryption to protect user privacy. However, there are concerns that a move to end-to-end encryption, encrypted systems when public safety issues are not taken into account is eroding a number of existing online safety methodologies. This could have significant consequences for tech companies' ability to tackle grooming, CSA material, and other harmful or illegal behaviours on their platforms. Companies will need to regularly assess the risk of harm on their service, including the risks around end-to-end encryption. They would also need to assess the risks ahead of any significant design changes, such as a move to -to end-to-end encryption. Service providers will then need to take reasonably practicable steps to mitigate the risks they identify. Now, that to me all seems pretty fair enough, right? If you're going to roll out E2EE, maybe you need to put some thought into how you're not going to turn your app or platform uh, into the content distribution tool of choice for pedophiles. I mean, you know, (laughs) seems reasonable to me. Now, that does not mean that the government is saying you can't use E2EE it's saying that you need to actually put some thought into into how your app or comms platform mitigates some of these harms or, or tries to reduce them. And we've seen with WhatsApp, one of the ways that they mitigate harms is they do regular scanning of things like group names and things like that. Some apps are introducing like on-device scanning. If you're going to share an image, um, it will you know check it against a, a, a known database of, of CSAM, that sort of thing. So, you know, I think a lot of the commentary around this and this happens so regularly in in the sort of infosec world. A lot of the commentary around this is just really bad faith. Signal is an interesting one because from the very beginning, you know, it was designed to be relatively simple and have end to end encryption. Whereas, say something like WhatsApp, we retrofit it. We has a bunch of complex features. You know, they're they're kind of different categories of thing. And then 
you know, Signal kind of, it's part of their brand to, you know, play hard with this. But Signal has not been simple for, for you know, quite some time, right? It's not the simple end-to-end encrypted person-to-person messenger that it was 10 years ago. Well, whenever it I was. I mean, it's got crypto launched, payments seems, and stuff built into it now. it's now, got yeah, crypto payments and group messaging and all sorts of things, um, you know, and a subscription model even, right? Which, you know, from the point of view of knowing who your customers are, it kind of changes the model a bit versus what it was originally. So, you know... It, it's very easy to imagine the simplistic, idealistic, you know, sort of vision of something like Signal when it started, but the reality of it now is a bit different than that. And you're right that the wording, you know, E2E is involved, but, you know, something as simple as scanning the group names, right, that's not a necessarily a cryptographic thing, you know, that's a, and that's what I mean by, by all this complexity, adding avenues where they could actually do something, and you know, maybe they choose not to, and that's fine. Like, they can do that. Uh, but, yeah, the story is always, wherever we've seen it in Australia with the The, the assistance AMA and bill. access bill, yeah. Which no one talks about anymore. It passed into law, and, you know, authorities pump out a really boring report once a year that shows how they used it to handle some weird edge case with an uncooperative provider. You know what I mean? And And no one cares about it. Tech investment didn't leave Australia en masse like everyone was screaming would happen. You know what I mean? Like the the, the world kept spinning. I'm still using Signal. It's fine. You know, <laughs> like it's just a lot of this is frustrating. Look, I'm going to read you uh, some, some comments from Whitaker now on the online safety bill. She said, it's a very troubling piece of legislation. The proactive requirement for services such as Signal to police expression and content would effectively require some form of surveillance capabilities. What? You know, look. Like, listen to this comment. The outcome they want presupposes mass surveillance capabilities, presupposes a regime that polices acceptable versus unacceptable expression. I mean, I think we can all agree that child sex abuse material is unacceptable expression. You know, like, the way these people talk is just insane to me. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's rooted in that kind of 90s cypherpunk absolutism and much like, you know, open source absolutism or any of the other kind of really fringe positions, it's not necessarily a way that the real world can work, but they are still valuable in moving the average, you know, the center point around. Like we have encryption almost everywhere now, and that has made the kind of mass surveillance that did exist back when everybody's email was in the clear everywhere and everybody's internet comms were in the clear. Like it has made that more difficult and more controlled, but you know, universal privacy from the government and from law enforcement is a thing that if as a society we decided was worth it, we would do, but we haven't and it isn't. No, it's not. And I mean, I just don't understand why. Okay, so, you know, you read some of the criticisms um, of proposals like this to do things like on-device scanning, right? And you saw what happened when Apple tried to introduce this. You know, there was an outrage and they had to back away from it. But I think, you know, if you're the Signal CEO... And you have a problem with the way you think the government is going to demand that you put anti-CSAM measures into your product. Why don't you sit down and try to work out some measures that you're actually comfortable with? And if you can sit there and say, no, I'm not comfortable at all doing any type of content inspection to stem the, the tide of CSAM running through my services, like what, what are you even doing? You know, I just don't understand why that, you know, the position is so absolute they're just saying, no, we will do absolutely nothing about this. And it, I, I just think it's nuts. Yeah. And I mean, I know that it's a hard conversation because, you know, you're starting from 
and I don't know the, the necessary I don't necessarily know the history of the people in you know leadership and signal etc other than you know what Moxie posted back in the day but you know this comes from an extreme position that back in the 90s probably was a, a reasonable place to be but you know it's 2020 something you know the world and comms and technology and all of the you know we are past where we were in the 90s where you know exporting bigger than 40 bit crypto or using pgp or whatever were things that we were going to fight about but you know and i grew up from that world too you know and so i feel their pain but the world has just kind of changed a bit and this stuff matters you know in in yeah. ways that it didn't when we were 20 year old cypherpunk kids yeah you know now you know parents and a bit more balanced a bit more politically aware like it, it i don't know it's complicated I mean, it's hard. These are hard problems, right? They are hard problems, and but ultimately, it's a society, you know, thing, right? We have to decide where the balance of trade-off between privacy and and well, apparently, we is. don't get to decide that, Adam. The people who get to decide that are tech companies and app makers, not the people <laughs> that we elect to write our laws. And that's another part of this that really kind of irks me: is people think, no, no, we're above this law. We, we're not going to play. We'll just leave that market rather than, you know, than obey the laws that have been drafted by people who were elected democratically to make those laws. Yeah. Anyway, you know, I'm sorry. I can't believe I'm sitting here standing for government, but my God. <laughs> anyway, anyway, yeah. I, you yeah, know, we've, yes. we've, we've done enough on this. Let's move on. Um, now, here's one that you and I talked about quite a bit this morning before we got going. Uh, we, we, we had a good old argument about this one, um, Adam. <laughs> Which is there's a lot of rumblings coming out of the White House right now, right? So there's uh, Camille Stewart-Gloster, who is the Deputy National Cyber Director for Technology and Ecosystem Security. Um, she's made some comments on this. Chris Inglis, who's just stepped down from his government, US government position, and also Jen Eastley, who's the head of CISA. They've all been making these noises about how perhaps some sort of regulation or legislation is needed to put some liability back on software makers um, for making really dumb design choices and really insecure products. I mean, it sounds on the surface, so here's my position. On the surface, this sounds like a really, really good idea. The problem is that software systems are incredibly complicated, incredibly dynamic, and if you allowed people to sue for software being bad, you would need to 10x the court system to handle the load. Um, <laughs> it's basically where I sit on this. So I, I feel like this is something that comes up every sort of seven years or something. It sounds great, but when you really dive into the details and try to work through this, it falls apart pretty quick. That's my feeling. Yes, and this is, it's, it's a complicated problem. Um, and, you know, my gut reaction when I read this, you know, as someone who has spent a lot of time busting security software in particular, but, you know, software in general is terrible and vendors and manufacturers of software do not do anywhere enough security-focused quality assurance. And, you know, we only have to look at, you know, bugs and all of the perimeter bugs that we've seen lately, you know, Fortinet and Pulse VPN and all those kind of things that, you know, at the very least, if you're marketing your product as secure, it would be nice if it was. Uh, and, you know, you look into... But secure is, any, secure is a relative term. What does that mean? So, so, yes, right. Secure is a relative term. And, you know, I... You know, I feel like there's a, you know, there's an advertising, like a truth in advertising angle. And I feel like there is a, like, generally expecting your customers to do quality assurance around your product themselves by hiring pen testers or whatever else, or to design their environments 
to constrain your product to best practice, least privilege, you know, layer of controls around your product to, to assume that it's bad and then defend for it. Like that ultimately is what you have to do because software is crap by and large. But you just see so many products where the vendor has not either thought about security or has not done a good enough job of QA or has not provided good enough information that the customers could engineer controls around it. I mean, that um, IBM Aspra file transfer system bug, which um, uh, we talked, I think, mentioned briefly last week, uh, and it's now under active exploitation. Like, that turns out to be a, like, pretty default Ruby on Rails kind of thing where they used a framework that was too powerful and they didn't understand the consequences of some choices that they made. And that's a, you know, that's not up to the customer to layer controls around right that's but could, a, have, could they have reasonably have been expected to prevent that flaw from entering the market in the first place now if you know perhaps ibm should have caught it but what if you're a startup you know what i mean what if you're a startup engineering a technology like this can that startup team of five be reasonably expected to catch that sort of s- subtle bug you know well, I mean, that, as i say a, once you yeah. start breaking this down it's it starts problem. getting complicated yeah i mean i you know my position is, you know, particularly biased because, you know, breaking software is what I've done for most of my career. And you do want to blame the vendor. You do want, you know, when every vendor says we take privacy and security seriously and every yeah, vendor it has makes you want to stab them in the face. Screens, I get it. It yeah. makes you want to slap them in the face. And the consequences for selling crappy software in the market are not particularly severe, right? I mean, look at all the Fortinet bugs or, or whoever else. You but know, so you're making my point for me which is that this is an emotional argument and once you try yes and once you try to translate it into a regulatory framework yes. i just don't think it's going to achieve anything apart yeah. from launch a million lawsuits that go nowhere yeah i mean and and fair enough like i do want to slap a whole bunch of vendors in the face and um you know it feels like market failure right when the vendors don't get punished for releasing crappy software that feels like market failure and it feels like that's the regulator's job in the free market to make it operate fairly and there should be regulation. But then we get down to the specifics of, well, what is that regulation actually? What's responsible? What should they do? And, you know. Well, it couldn't even, it uh, might not even necessarily be a regulation. It might be outlawing certain EULA, you know, EULA terms and conditions, right? To, uh, you know, stop vendors from being able to completely absolve themselves of responsibility if they happen to throw the user through a wood chipper, you know, like that. Because those EULAs are pretty extreme. But again, I just, I just think this is an extremely complicated problem that has yes. been looked at a million times before and it never goes anywhere. That's why I'm just a bit of a skeptic here. I think yeah, I think some of the yeah. efforts around things like, um, I mean, look, not even specifically the SBOM stuff that the federal government was going to mandate for federal procurement, but things like that I think can move the needle, right? Whereas things like this, which is looking at punishing the wicked, I just don't think it's going to work. <laughs> there's too much. There's too much wicked. There's too much we wickedness. Don't. Like you yes. look at, you know, you were just talking about how you wanted to basically slap every vendor in the head, mm-hmm. and this is the thing: they're all bad. You know, yes. you, you start forcing them to do secure by design, great software. <laughs> we won't have any software anymore, Adam. Well, maybe that would be a better world. <laughs> let's <laughs> that's all the problem software. Let's outlaw it. Let's all go live in the bush next yes, to a river that, in a little hut. Sounds, in little huts, we can live in little that huts. Sounds amazing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's do that. U.S. government, please mandate that we all live in huts by the yeah. river and have no computers. Well, and you uh, mentioned Fortinet stuff. Dan Gooden just um, 
I mean, it's so funny because you see reports about ex- active exploitation against Fortinet. You have to click through and like see, is it, this is a new one or an the, old it one? This and, week's one or last week's yeah, one? Yeah, this last one month's looks one. pretty recent. I don't even know if we spoke about this one. It was patched last they're week. All, I can't even remember all, if we spoke about it. That's how common they are. Yeah, well, they all it all blurs into one. But like, for at very least for a security product, come on, like let's do some product eval, product testing before we ship it. But I mean, honestly, I think that they should force their users to accept <clears throat> a. Uh, state of affairs where they can forcibly update the devices because ultimately okay they might cause some devices to fall over but it's better than them getting owned and they will so i kind of feel like something radical might be needed there what do you think (laughs) i mean it's yeah it's 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 a reasonable argument like forcible updates i mean windows kind of does it. it'll just reboot out from under you because it's time for security patch and sucks if you're working on something and I guess we accept that by and large. <laughs> um, so yeah, maybe, maybe Cisco could just do it, reboot everyone's routers. Speaking of Fortinet, they actually acquired one of our sponsors. <clears throat> so Iceberg, which was a you know one of the early uh, network detection and response uh, platforms, got acquired by Gigamon. And according to public reporting, uh, this actually caused problems for Gigamon because security companies didn't want to partner with them because they were competing with them as well. So they've divested in the NDR, you know, the cloud NDR part of the business, which I quite liked. Um, and they have sold that off to to Fortinet. Um, so, yes. Where it will become part of like 40 NDR. Big, shocking, shocking product naming there. <laughs> yeah, but I think they're going to keep the cloud bit. And like, honestly, I feel like it's it's strange because Fortinet, there's a lot of Fortinet out there. So I sort of feel like it's good that more people are going to use Iceberg, but it's sad <laughs> that it took them being sold to Fortinet to do that. <laughs> you know, so many mixed feelings about this. Yeah, mixed feelings. Mixed feelings. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, I don't know how many of the original Iceberg crew were still around, but, you know, if so, we tip our hats to you. And uh, best of luck. Godspeed. Godspeed, Godspeed. Icebergers. Um, and this one, I only put it in the news run sheet because when I, were, uh, when I read the headline, I wondered if there'd been a CMS glitch at Portswigger and they were accidentally publishing articles from 10 years ago. Um, <laughs> but there's a bug in uh, Clam, Clam AV, which is now all over Cisco gear, Adam, and it's a bad one. Yes, this is like straight up remote code exec um, in Clam AV via like shocking horror, a file parsing bug. Um, the funny thing is that Clam AV actually is a Cisco, like it's an open source, pro- open source project, but it's owned by Cisco and kind of run by Cisco. And then they use it in a bunch of their products, all of which I note have secure in the name. Yeah, like, like Cisco, Cisco Secure Endpoint, you know, powered by Clam AV. They don't yes. put powered by Clam AV on it necessarily. But maybe, they? maybe they should. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the funny thing I guess here is without being mean to the Clam AV open source crew, because they have done a lot of thankless work over the years building an open source antivirus product. Uh, but I... Uh, I don't know if I if I'm testing in an environment where Clam AV is in the mail system to do like inline mail filtering. To me, that feels like a net security negative. Like you've taken a whole bunch of complexity, put it in one highly trusted place that processes all your data, and then exposed it to the attacker. That like architecturally doesn't seem like a great choice to me. So well, apparently, um, apparently Cisco's mail scanning products weren't affected by this, right? So that's that's something. But that's uh, something. and look back in the day, you know, there was some cool work done by. Uh, the Clam AV people, you know, they could figure out some interesting detections and whatnot. But it's just, you know, it's just falls into that bucket of like, that's a name I haven't heard in years. Yes, you know? yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And looks like the bug, this particular bug came out of um, some Google research. So presumably Google's there fuzzing 
uh, yep. you know, all of the AV they can get their hands on, which they Firing have been up the old time. AFL. Yes, yeah, and, and fuzzing <laughs> and fun heaps of bugs. But all antivirus engines have had bugs. I mean, even Microsoft uh, Defender had some like horrible code exec. Uh, yeah. courtesy Tar- Tavis Ormandy. Well, because, because okay, the way I've always explained this is when you've got an AV engine, it's a content parser. That's yes. basically its job. It's like parser. Par- it has to parse every type Everything. of content that's going to hit your box. And it's not mass software. So it's not like Google Chrome, which gets buckets of money thrown at it for QA, right? It's an AV scanner that has to parse everything Chrome has to parse, has to be as secure as, as Chrome is, um, and you know operates on a much smaller budget, right? So there's just this scale problem where, yeah, AV engines are always going to be vulnerable. I mean, you can engineer some of that away with mitigations and sandboxing and all sorts of stuff, but ultimately... You know, writing a piece of software that has to do all of that parsing, it's just going to be, it's just going to be risky always. Yeah. And it has to do it fast. Typically, yep. like if you're, if you're doing real-time scanning, right, you've got a time budget, much like a web application firewall or anything else that's doing content inspection. You know, you've got a time, you know, CPU budget uh, and, you know, you have to run in a privileged context typically. And I, mean, I know when I first saw the, um, you know, like uh, hypervisor AV scanners that would look for, you know, um, viruses inside the memory uh, of virtual machines that are running under the hypervisor. I just look, I'm like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. That makes me very happy as an attacker. Not, mm. I'm afraid of the AV that I can't see in the hypervisor. I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get shells. Yeah. yeah, yeah. In, in that hypervisor. <laughs> yes, exactly right. Yeah. Highly privileged context, super complicated task, limited time budget. It's just a recipe for getting shelled. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, you know, much love to the Clam AV folk. Um, but uh, yeah, wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Joe, Joe Cox over at Motherboard um, has a story up. I mean, this is a fairly obvious thing, but he's actually gone and done it, which is that these AI-generated voice uh, things that where you you know you put in a sample of your voice and it, and it can generate your voice back at you can be used to full voice recognition for things like uh, authentication over the phone to your bank. So he was able to authenticate to his bank account using an AI-generated version of his voice. I mean, I'm not I'm not surprised, but kudos for him for actually sitting down and doing it. I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's always some fiddles. I mean, it's it's clearly likely to be possible, but there is always fiddles in actually doing this stuff. I mean, you know, we've done some reviews of, you know, face-based authentication where, you know, one of those ones where you, like, you video conference it and then it looks at your face and checks that you're alive and that you are who you are and similarly with voice. And yeah, it's going to be possible. It's a question of where, where on that kind of arms race scale you're at uh, and it can be fiddly. And he did say that he had some challenges at first. And with had the to accent, go and give yeah had to go and give the system like a big enough sample and so on to get it to work well, but yet that ultimately it did. So yeah, uh, yeah. if you're a bank and you're relying on that stuff, you know, certainly be aware that it's a thing that people can do, you know, for dollars these days. My voice is my passport. Verify me. Exactly. Keep yeah. thinking yeah. of that, you know, would have made, would have made sneakers a much shorter film. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just log into some website and, and uh, yeah, job done. No need for a date with a creeper. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and uh, chat GPT phishing lures are everywhere. People <laughs> spinning up. Um, this is just a story we wanted to include. People are like creating like fake chat GPT apps and putting them in app stores. And <laughs> it's, it's, it's just so funny because there was so much, so many column inches spilled on, on Twitter and Mastodon and so on about, you know, using chat GPT to make malware or make viruses or use for phishing lures. And what do we actually end up doing? We end up just offering people like download chat GPT.exe. Yeah. <laughs> so you can run it yourself. Yeah. Well, 
and uh, that that is apparently working too. So yeah. uh, we don't normally, <laughs> you know, we don't normally talk about the fishing lure of the week. It's just funny that one. Yeah, it is. Now, look, the last thing I wanted to talk about was uh, Momentum Cyber has, uh, you know, they're like, like a, a some sort of investment bank that specialises in in cybersecurity, and they're the ones who do those like giant infographics with all of the vendor logos on them and show categorization and stuff. And like, honestly, a lot of that works quite good. And um, they just issued a report that I think is just worth reading for people who are, have an interest in what's happening in the sort of cybersecurity market, right? And what's very clear is that venture capital investment is collapsing. And that's just because people are getting better returns elsewhere, right? Like you can buy a bond now and get a good return. Why would you throw millions of dollars at a VC firm and ask them to deploy it in risky investments? It, it doesn't really make much sense um, to do that in this in this current context. So... So VC is drying up, but the interesting thing is Momentum have found that like corporate infosec budgets are still going up, right? So we've got this really weird thing where there's been kind of a VC bubble driven by ultra low interest rates that's really pumped up the startup ecosystem in cybersecurity. Um, and, you know, partially for good reason, because it is a growing discipline. There's more and more money being spent on it every year, but the money going in didn't kind of match the growth and now that money is not coming in anymore. So basically I think, and, and they also point out in this report that last year was like a record year for consolidation, right? There were a lot of acquisitions some very big deals um, and some small ones as well. And there's just a lot of pieces being moved around the board at the moment. I think the next like year and a half are going to be insane on the commercial side of like the startup scene. Um, did you have a look at this? Yeah, yeah, but it kind of makes sense that we would go through a, you know, sort of innovation and then consolidation cycle, right? There was a lot of new things we could do in, in the security world, there were lots of new categories of products, yeah. you know, not just new products, but whole new things that we came up with. And yeah, there was a lot of money being thrown around and it kind of makes sense that, you know, there is a subset of those controls and products and things that actually do work. And some of the attacks that we've seen, like the sorts of controls that would work, robust authentication, robust multi-factor. Like when we see things like Okta and Duo doing so well now, but 10 years ago, the idea of easy to use robust MFA was innovative and new and it made sense. And now we've got products that you know, do make it materially more difficult. And there is kind of, you know, we're in a point where maybe we need less crazy innovation and we need more sensible, More development robust. into those categories that have yes. stood up that actually look good. Yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 I agree with you. And it's interesting, you know, talking to a bunch of founders and everyone's trimming back, you know, like they're either slowing down hiring, some of them are doing layoffs, but it's just, yeah, I just think this report ties together a bunch of stuff that I'm seeing as well as like the publisher of a website like this, of, of podcasts like this. And I just thought it was worth highlighting. Yeah, and I'm sure everyone is very interested in what the future of their industry and their jobs and you know their ideas are. So yeah, worth worth keeping you know keeping track of what the position is in the world. Yeah. All right, Adam, that's actually it for this week's news. Uh, thanks a lot for joining me. Uh, fun as always, and we'll do it all again next week. Yeah. Thanks, Pat. Talk to you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a look at the week's security news. It is time for a chat now with uh, Tynes CEO and co-founder Owen Hinchy. Tynes is a no-code automation platform that's really easy to use. 
But with everyone like generating code snippets with ChatGPT these days, I wondered if perhaps there's a new wave of automation tech coming that will use large language models to handle inputs. Now, before I go any further here, I would recommend that you do check out the Tynes demo on our YouTube page. I've linked through to it in this week's show notes uh, because yeah, it's very cool and Seeing that demo will help you better understand where Owen is coming from here. But the TLDR is that while ChatGPT-based automation plays will probably emerge, the front-end interface bit isn't necessarily like the only important part of an automation platform. Uh, and, you know, just as Haroon Mir recently told me in an interview, like the hard part with a lot of Thinks stuff is actually all of the alerting infrastructure, making that stuff scalable, reliable, resilient. You know, if it if it stops working, you know, that sort of thing, right? And it's kind of the same here. You could maybe turn Tynes into Kit from Knight Rider, but like, why? I guess is the message. Anyway, here's Owen Hinchy on ChatGPT, and I hope you enjoy this interview. I think it's absolutely incredible. Like without putting too fine a point on it, I think it's absolutely incredible. There's something, there's something magical in talking to a computer and saying, hey, write me a poem about like the futility of trying to put a USB drive the right way up into a computer, right? And it like goes, <laughs> it, it's cogs start churning and there's your poem spat out saying like, oh yeah, look, this is great. Um, and then you say, no, no, that's not good enough. Now do it in the form of like a Shakespearean sonnet. And sure enough, it goes again and you end up with like a, a Shakespearean sonnet that says something like, oh, drive, why dost thou like make fools of us or something, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, you could kinda, um, you could kind of, you could kind of bully it, you know, ask it to do stupid stuff. <laughs> shoot at its feet and tell it to dance and it will yeah yeah and like there, there's there, there's something incredible at that but i but i totally get your point because at the end of the day you're left with a shakespearean sonus about a usb drive and it's like well what the <laughs> hell am i going to do with this thing it's like it, it lacks a fair amount of utility yeah and um, so how does like, this improve I, I, my I, life right like yeah. yeah 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 outside of like the the gimmickny and the novelness of it like what can it actually do for me um bit of a sidetrack but i I see it as a massive opportunity and a massive threat, like yeah. genuinely. And I, I think you're right. I think the most impressive, useful implementation of chat GTP that I've seen is GitHub Copilot. And that's not surprising given like the Microsoft connection and so on. But all our engineers use GitHub Copilot. Everybody uses it. We have certainly played around with it a bunch, both from like a personal perspective, but also then as a way to like implement it into the product. Um, at the at the end of the day, our ambition in Tynes is to build the most powerful and easy to use automation platform. That's really what we're trying to do. And so we're open to any technology that will help us achieve that goal, whether that means like no code technology, whether that means like large scale um, language models. So there's in a, in a very self-evident way, you can see how ChatGPT would make times easier to use, right? And, you know, even today, like right out the gates, like when uh, ChatGPT opened its, um, opened its gates and allowed beta users, we typed in, create a Tynes workflow that allows you receive alerts from Splunk and create Jira tickets. And sure enough, there it was straight away. So it had found our documentation. It had implemented it across its like learning models and it could do it. And, you know, 90% of the use cases that we came up with that were kind of like fairly straightforward and simple, it was absolutely spot on, like really perfect. Now, the problem was that the other 10% were absolute garbage, like yeah. complete junk, made no sense, talking to the completely wrong systems. 
and the more we added complexity. So now it wasn't a case of receiving an alert from Splunk, create a Jira ticket. It was receiving an alert from Splunk and only create a Jira ticket with high severity. Then things started to like fall apart. And so even, you know, even Sam Altman, like the CEO of OpenAI says, don't use this thing for serious applications, right? This is not meant to be used in any type of mission critical use cases. Our customers do not want a platform that's going to work 90% of the time, right? We have very strict SLAs. Uh, we have very, uh, very firm agreements that say this platform is going to work in a very expected, predictable way 99.9% .9 of the time. And so although ChatGP is amazing at helping you build those workflows, it's not reliable enough for us to use in the product. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it's certainly where we are now. It, 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 yeah, it looks great, but... Maybe not. Nonetheless, let's put this to the side for a second. I think mm -hmm. you and I would both agree that that the future of this stuff looks promising, right? Like if this is the beta, it's the proof of concept, right? It's pretty impressive for certain things. So I guess I guess the question is like, how much effort are you putting into trying to understand how you would best make use of this sort of technology in your platform? Um, so we've got an R&D team that don't just look at this technology, they look at a bunch of technologies. And, um, you know, back to our original ambition to build like a powerful and easy to use platform, we put equal weight on both parts of that equation, right? So we want this tool to be exceptionally powerful, but we also want it to be easy to use. And so we don't want to implement ChatGPT, which will make the platform really easy to use, but will re dramatically reduce the power of the platform because you can no longer rely on it. Um, but, you know, one of the amazing things about ChatGPT is how easy they've made it to implement this thing. Like it is so simple. The so you messed around with so the API. Clean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so easy to implement that you could roll it out into Tines like in 10 minutes and it would be there and you would have a little text box. The problem is it would feel super gimmicky, right? Yeah. And that is not what we want to do. So we are all in on using this technology to enhance the product but where we're not convinced just yet is how do we do it in a way that both improves the experience for our users but also doesn't feel really gimmicky and almost ambulance chasey to just like ram this new technology into the product in yeah, order yeah, to yeah. say that we've got ai i mean it feels like it feels like it sort of cuts against the grain of the Tynes philosophy anyway, which is to break down automation tasks into simple primitives and have you actually construct automation using those those primitives, which is almost a thought exercise designed to help people structure their automation in a sensible way as well. That was the other thing that occurred to me, right? Like is, is the process of actually using Tynes to construct the rule helps you better understand what it is that you're actually doing. And if you start farming that off onto an algorithm, you know, you, you're probably going to lose a little bit of insight into what it is that you're actually doing. Does that make sense? I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it in that way, honestly. Um, I think what, what chat GPT would do, like, just like writing program, right? Just write, writing code. You would say, Hey, chat GTP, write me a JavaScript function that will receive a list of coordinates, put them into array. Um, and return latitude and longitude for each one or something like that, right? So you still have to know exactly what you want to do, even to use ChatGTP in a code world. In times, you'd have to do something really similar. And ChatGTP would have to understand our primitives the same way it would need to understand the methods, classes, um, variable and function types in JavaScript. But, but I think where 
what will become really, really interesting is when we actually start applying this model, this technology to all our data, like all the data that we have in our own like private clouds and our own databases and so on. Because right now, ChatGTP is being trained and learning off like our public docs. It's learning off like the stack overflow questions that people have asked about times. That's maybe like 1% of the actual learning material for times. Yeah. Right. So if we were to take, okay, there's this massive learning model, it's got 99% of the work. Now, like, let's add some like vertical utility by pointing it at all the different workflows that all our customers have built with their permission that all these customers have built and that'll make it way smarter. And yeah. now all of a sudden it's got the basic foundations that it comes with out of the box. And it's got the sharp edges that have been um, that have been kind of like cut through looking at our actual real world data. I think that's where yeah. things will get really exciting. I mean, earlier I said that you know Tynes is sort of a two part thing. You've got the you know the interface part, which in, you know where where you can actually sit down and design a, a you know an automation workflow, and then you've got the doing it part. Um, you know, as I alluded to, this is mostly a threat to the to the first part. <clears throat> not so much to the second, but do you anticipate? I mean, I can I can imagine right now someone is preparing a slide deck to go pitch a VC on an automation startup based on on ChatGPT, right? Like you and yeah. I both know, there's like five people working on that right now. Um, you know, are you just at that point where you can say, "All right, lol, bring it on," you know, and 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 it's something that you're going to try to stay ahead of, or like, you know, just just curious for your feelings on how it's going to change the competitive landscape, I guess. The way I think about it personally is I look at like what's going to be best for our customers. Like, hey, do do our customers want a really simple interface that is an automation tool that allows them to just type in uh, every time I receive an email, create a Slack message? Some of them probably do, but like 99% of our customers, that's not what they want. What they really want is this tool that allows them to translate in a very quick way what they already want to do into this graphical workflow that's going to be robust and scalable and so on. And to your point, the interface is maybe 10% of how these workflows are created. The other 90%, which is where the actual action happens, which is like the robustness and the scalability and the security. And, and the it not falling over, et cetera, right? And yeah. And this, exactly. is, this, is, this is exactly why I wanted to ask you about it because I just wondered like how much of the magic is in that interface part, right? Yeah. Because because when, when you talk to you know, Tyne's customers, that's one of the things they talk about is like just how easy it is to use. So that's an interface thing. Whereas I guess what you're saying is, well, that was kind of the easy bit. <laughs> oh, totally. Like, you, I, I shouldn't say the easy bit because it, it wasn't easy and it takes a lot of care and so on. But it, you, I don't think you can actually take the two the whole the whole system and start ripping components apart. Yeah, and saying, yeah, yeah. Hey, which no, ones I, are the important part. I get what you mean. Like you know the reason I mean? you can have an easy interface is because of the other work that you've done to make that interface possible, right? Absolutely, and and you know it's it's like a left hand and a right hand. You know, yeah. the, the interface is really really important, and it's going to allow you to build quickly, and it's going to allow you to get feedback really really quickly. But without the actual robust, scalable backend that's making all the requests and is going to stay up for five nines availability, the front end is useless and vice versa. Right? There's loads of really pretty interfaces that can't do anything in a um, 
in, in, a, in a mission critical workflow because they don't have that robustness. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, Owen Hinchy, thank you so much for joining us for that conversation. I'm really sorry to, to you and to our listeners for doing a ChatGPT themed interview. Uh, <laughs> my deepest my deepest apologies. Uh, it was my idea, I will admit it. Um, but yeah, look, that was all really interesting stuff. And uh, yeah, I appreciate your time. Anytime. That was Owen Hinchy there with a chat about no-code automation and ChatGPT. Big thanks to him for that and big thanks to Tynes for being a sponsor. As you can probably tell from the way I'm talking about them, I think Tynes is super cool and definitely something you should check out. But that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Seriously Risky Business in the Risky Business News RSS feed. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.